2: I don't like
0: blood and guts But I love them when they're lengthily discussed
1: Today, we have the major honor of having our guest, Lee Unkrich, here. Uh, Listeners will most certainly know Lee for his astonishing work as a filmmaker at Pixar Animation Studios. He was the co-director of Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo, as well as the director of the already classics, Toy Story 3, and Coco. He's also the co-author of a breathtaking new book from Toshin, about the making of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that Matt Gorley and I here love and adore and are obsessed about, just like Jack Torrance with the <laughs> scrapbook. We are so thrilled to have him here today. Please welcome to the show, Lee Onkrich.
0: Yay. Hey, it's so great to be here, guys. Um I'm a big fan of your show, and I've already been listening to your Shining episodes, episode, <laughs> and uh, so I'm thrilled to to be here. I'm
2: so excited to have you here, and we left out one of your major points in your bio and that you are responsible for, I'd say, 90% of my daughter's happiness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many times we've watched your films in this oh. house, pre and post
0: Glenn Gorley. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so well and uh the praise doesn't have to just uh end with the intro uh lee we are big uh you know movie buffs over here and you have the rare distinction of making the only part three that is as good or better than the original film fans can't even name one
0: i know we've been talking about that imagine the pressure i felt <laughs> while i was making that movie <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell us what yes. was that pressure what like? I like? am not exaggerating that most mornings my alarm would go off. And the first thing I felt like doing was like rolling to the side and vomiting over the side <laughs> oh, of my bed. I can't imagine.
2: I can Not only that the pressure to kind of deliver on what has already been brought, but, you you know, that movie kind of goes in places that the others didn't. So did that feel like a risk as in itself, that kind of story arc?
0: No, you know, I don't think so. I mean, you know, each of us as filmmakers have our own taste at the studio, and my taste um, can run a bit dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I was always, you know, always within the the, the guardrails of you know, what we knew we were making. Um, but especially with the Toy Story films, I mean, the, I I always feel like there are two stories running in those films. There's a story that that kids can get and enjoy and have a great time. And, and there's also a whole other layer, again, in those films specifically, that adults really relate to. I mean, they're about being a kid as much as they are about being an adult and going through life and all of the different kinds of things we face in the course of life. So... Um, it's interesting to look at those three, at least the first three Toy Story films. We made the first one when we were all in our 20s. Oh, my God. And uh, most of us didn't have kids yet. And, you know, by the time we get to three, a lot of us had sent sent kids off to college. I hadn't yet by the time I made that film, but I have now sent all my kids to college. Um, so the the films are almost like kind of markers of kind of what we were going through in life, mm-hmm. you know, over time.
1: And then, in terms of uh, Coco, which is just like, oh my god, truly an astonishing movie, and has a scene that like it's like the it is on the rare uh, list of movies like Rocky or ET where you can just either watch the full movie, ball your eyes out, or drop into the moment before the last scene and still ball your <laughs> eyes out. Um, I'm just curious because Coco is about the afterlife. You before we get into the book and everything, I'm just. What did The Shining mean to you as you were working on Coco? And it's sort of about spirits, ghosts, afterlife questions of what happens to you after that di- after you die. Also, that there yeah. one is makes you cry at the end and feel connected to those who've come before you, whereas The Shining terrifies you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't which, sure For- which one you meant. Paul. <laughs> <I liked it.
0: laughs> yeah. Or even leaves you cold. Yes, you know, exactly. <laughs> <what it's> like. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I thought about the shining too much while I was making cocoa from from a like a spiritual or or uh um kind of afterlife perspective. But I mean it's certainly the shining has had an influence on everything that I've made um from a filmmaking perspective. Um Yeah. I don't, you know, it's interesting. Like I love, I've always loved horror films. Like when I was in high school, my friends and I, it's all we did is watch horror movies and slasher films. And I was so into all that. And, and once I started having my career, it was kind of unending that people, people would interview me and not understand (laughs) why someone who loves The Shining so much can be making these family films. <laughs> and I mean, in my mind, everything cohabitates. It's like one big soup in there and everything influences the other things. I mean, if I, if I was only watching family films, I would be really worried for myself. <laughs> yeah. That's creepier <laughs> that than just watching diet.
2: horror films to me, a, a grown adult watching just family films over horror. It films would just would
0: be, be weird. Yeah, yeah. So um, like, there's no, there's no uh, confusion in my mind. I mean, I, I love all kinds of different films and, some are family friendly and some aren't
1: what uh, horror movies yeah were you digging before you saw The Shining or what were you watching with buddies oh I don't
0: I I actually wasn't really watching scary stuff before The Shining because I, I saw The Shining when I was 12 okay God, that's, I saw it in theaters when it came oh, out oh wow and um, I was surprised my mom took me I mentioned this in the foreword to the book uh, because like a year or two earlier, she had taken me to see a movie called It Lives Again, which was the sequel to It's Alive, <laughs> uh-huh. the Larry Cohen film. So I, I, I remember being terrified by the commercial for It's Alive, but I just wasn't old enough to see it. The and poster the too, with the little yeah, oh man, that right, that just chilled. I mean, me I, I even had I had the novelization of uh. it, and. <laughs> Uh, So when the sequel came out, I begged my mom to take me and she did. And it was the biggest mistake she ever made in her life because it led literally to a year of nonstop nightmares every night. It was like the most traumatic event of my childhood. (laughs) So when The Shining happened, I was really surprised that she took me. Um, And I don't even remember wanting to go or how I even became aware of it. It may have been that my mom knew that it was a new Kubrick film? I don't even know. Honestly, we just ended up at the mall watching The Shining one night. And I do remember, the only thing I remember about the screening is my mom turning to me and asking me if I was okay. Wow. And at what point I, though?
2: That's what i I don't know. I wish
0: I had more stories to tell about that first screening because <laughs> I don't really remember it. All I know is that I felt the beginnings of it like worming into my psyche. Wow. And it was a few days later that I saw the movie tie-in edition of Stephen King's novel on a book rack at a gas station and I bought it. And, and that was the the beginning of me going down this, you know, 40 plus year uh, wormhole.
1: <laughs> yeah. So then how did it, uh, what was your next watch of The Shining? Were you older? Was it, uh, how did it unfold for you? Your obsession with The well,
0: I. I couldn't see it again for a while um, because, of course, this was like the beginning of the home video industry, and we had a Betamax player, and so I waited mm, patiently. Aristocrat, for the shining, to, <laughs> yeah. I waited patiently for the Shining to come out, but when it first came out, you know, the studios were still figuring out the whole rental business, and so. Warner Brothers was releasing titles that were for rental only, meaning only rental stores could buy them oh, for like 150 yeah, bucks or something. I remember those. And then they would rent them to people. So I couldn't buy it, but I did start renting it and I rented it again and again. And I was showing it to my friends and, and then eventually they brought out a, a, a for sale edition, which, which I then picked up. Um so I don't know I was watching the movie again and again I really loved it it was rapidly becoming my favorite film um but in terms of an obsession what happened was in my in my novel in the Stephen King novel the movie tie-in edition that had Saul Bass's uh uh art on the cover there was a section of photos in the middle and I noticed at some point that one of the photos was a scene that I didn't remember being in the movie it was this shot of Wendy cooking breakfast in the kitchen and I was like, wait a minute. And I went back to the movie and I scrubbed all over and there was no scene. So that was the first inkling of wow, if there was a scene that he shot that Kubrick shot that wasn't in the film, were there others? And I and I sometime around the same time learned about the hospital epilogue that had been excised right after the initial limited release. And so that that's really the beginning of what I can remember. Being my obsession of trying to, track, trying to track down early screenplays or anything. And there was almost nothing to be had because Kubrick held such tight reins over just about everything. I love Lee, that.
1: Do you yeah. realize that that little tickle of interest that you got as a young boy, you have paid that back 100 fold to uh, Shining fans? Seriously, yeah. like to what? Uh, I know. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh, with the book. Look, I've read lots of making of books. It is hand down, hands down the best. The paragraphs uh, read, there's always three tidbits in a paragraph that I've never heard before. Yeah,
2: I showed fanatic. him this picture of my book. <laughs> yeah, It is like little-
1: breathless to read it. You're just like, and yeah. what's so badass is you have, it's so rich in information. You're not even taking the time to bring up the myths. You're just dispelling the myths with the information. You're like, yeah, yes. this is why they switched the typewriter. Uh, you know, yeah. this is how yeah. Stanley Kubrick discovered the book. You're, and my jaw is just like dropping at new information. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it's uh, it's one it's, of those rare books that's a thousand pages and you wish it was 2000 more. I, it it <laughs>
2: reminds me of like a doctoral dissertation that's peer review, reviewed, but not boring
0: you know what I mean? <laughs> and also very readable yeah, right? that's what i mean yes, yeah without yeah. a doubt jonathan my my partner on this project is jw Rinsler, yeah. uh who any movie buff knows from all the great work that he did and jonathan sadly passed away before we finished the project um but it, but he did get the entire book written um and uh we we just had a great partnership i just fed him information after information and interview after interview and he did the heavy lifting of collating everything into uh, into that that text, um, and just did a, a, a beautiful, beautiful job. What was he um, like as a person
1: and a man? Uh, I I, uh, I love his he, work. So
0: Jonathan is very. He was. He's very. Uh, he was very um, quiet, mm-hmm. um, or not. Maybe not quiet. Maybe more. I would say uh, reserved and uh, understated. But he was very passionate about what he did. And like very very passionate, he cared very much about it, and worked really really hard. Um, but he wasn't like a big personality. Um, uh, not that he needs to be. I mean, he's a writer, so he's right. he's he's locking himself away and doing the, doing the work. Is um, the
1: work you were yeah, doing, I, Lee, is uh, like you were doing the legwork, getting out there. Uh Cl- well, I did Clumbo I did
0: I, I did Well I you know there were so many times I felt like that guy in in the basement in movies who has like the single bare bulb and the <laughs> and the pictures and the maps and the strings going everywhere Yeah I wanted that to was ask basically you about my that. life for 10 years Did you have yeah.
2: a room dedicated to this and did you just do this when you had the time or did you take breaks from other work to really hunker down and handle this
0: I did have a room in here Oh my god <laughs> Everything, that dark basement with the single bare bulb is in here. Oh, God. Um, I just, I don't know. I just remember everything, just about everything. Every once in a while, I'd have to like cross check something. But that was really valuable because sometimes I would hear a story, but I would have no proof and I would file it away. And then... Uh, a photo would would appear. And I go, oh my God, that's that. That makes sense. That's a fact now that we can put in the book with with visual corroboration. Um, I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about the myths because I am driven crazy almost on a daily basis by, uh, I have a standing search on The Shining on Google. And it feels like almost every day there's some clickbait article about the Shining or Shelley Duvall or Kubrick or something. And it's all wrong. Like, it's like, none of it's factual. And each each of those articles uses the previous one as their primary source material. So, <laughs> and and these stories just get, I've, I've watched over a decade, these stories get more and more exaggerated. So I did need to deal with that in the book, but yes, you're right. Rather than like have a list of all this misinformation and then dispel it, I just tried to mostly... Uh, just state the facts. And I knew that the facts were dispelling um, the rumors. Um, th- there were a couple of times I couldn't resist. And I would say something like, despite popular wisdom on the internet, <laughs> you know, as a preface to discussing, say, the reality of how many takes Kubrick actually shot and what those scenes were. Um but uh, I don't know. I'm rambling here no, and you're asking a bunch of no. questions. So I'm having trouble keeping well, track of it. We're asking we're so
1: many questions and a flurry of questions. <laughs> Just, that's kind of when we get excited, we ask about something. Because, uh, uh, case in point, you mentioned uh, the myth of the takes. Matt and I discussed it. And it was interesting. We felt like, you know, oh, the myth before was Stanley Kubrick has something in his mind that he specifically wants. And he's doing all these takes to get. Everybody, the thing he has in his mind. And reading right. it now, this book, it's, oh, it's what any artist likes. Options. He doesn't want to be in an editing yeah. room and not have this thing that he, you know, yeah. like, or what, well, I what think was your viewpoint on it?
0: Well, I think it's partially about options, but I think it might have been even more so that he... Well, he claimed that he did as many takes as he sometimes did because the actors didn't know their lines. And mm-hmm. that was true mm-hmm. in many regards. The the scenes, some of the scenes with the highest takes on The Shining were scenes with Scatman Crothers where he had big speeches and he just didn't know them mm-hmm. well. Um, in Stanley's mind, knowing your lines wasn't just knowing your lines. It was knowing them so well that you didn't have to think about yeah. them. And he... Matthew Modine talks about this in his Full Metal Jacket diaries as well that uh, Stanley's frustration with people not knowing their lines. He felt like that's your job. Your job is to show up and know your lines inside and out and he would be frustrated when he could feel that that the actors weren't really completely prepared. Um, But I think maybe the bigger thing for the reason that I think Stanley would do a bunch of takes when he did is that he was always on a quest for something interesting and different. He didn't want to feel like he was repeating himself. He didn't want to feel like he was doing something that had been done before. Um, and and he I think he found often, especially with Nicholson, that uh, the deeper he got into the takes, Jack would start like being like, I don't know what you want anymore, but I'll do this all day and let's do something weird. And and those were often the takes that, that Stanley went with because they were just odd, you know? Uh, Kubrick's criticized sometimes for Jack's performance being so I don't know it's described as over the top or unrealistic and I think that's exactly what he was going for mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. what was interesting to him that's really what it comes down to is Stanley wanted something to be interesting mm-hmm. I read and that if it wasn't interesting he would keep going
2: I read that about uh, George C. Scott too in his takes for Buck Turgidson in that in um, Dr. Strangelove in that at the end they basically he'd say like give me one that's just a cartoon and they would do that and he would typically use those takes i don't know if that's just apocryphal or what but it seems i right. love
0: the story in the book that um i think uh joe turkle uh was quoted as talking about uh, when they were shooting the bar scene that jack really went over the top for one take and was just like every other word out of his mouth it was him swearing and it was like completely unusable and uh, uh I always loved when stories like that came up because I hadn't heard that one before. Like I, I had done so much research and had read so many interviews. I always knew when people were telling me the same stories they always told in interviews. And so I would always dig deeper I, and yeah, try to yeah. get different things out of them. And 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 one of the ways I was able to do that, at least with the people that I met with in person, is at a certain point, I had, I had amassed so many photographs that nobody had ever seen before. And you know, from looking at the book, like 80% of the photos in that book had not been published before. Yeah. Um, and I found that when I showed photos to people, they would spark memories, you know, instead of just dropping into the needle drop of how I always answer questions about The Shining, they could tell me a story like, oh, you know who that is? That's Werner Herzog. He was on the set that day. And like, <laughs> so these these stories would bubble up. and And I always knew immediately if I was hearing something that was completely brand new. I want to ask about
2: your just setting off on this quest. So this is such well-traveled material, but not really... Traveled well, if that makes sense. Um, (laughs) And you must have known from the beginning that you're heading out on a quest where there's all kinds of stories and trivia, but the the richness of footage and the wealth of all that extra footage is gone. So was there kind of like an emotional... (laughs)
1: Gone-ish.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I guess so. Because I have a lot of images in that book. Oh, do Yeah, but you? I'm you talking actual frames I'm from yeah, alternate I, takes and right. scenes that were cut that nobody even knew existed. But on a
2: typical <laughs> film, you could maybe get access to the vaults and see these alternate takes, but all the moving images of this are gone. And that's like True. emotionally yeah, got to be, you must have to wrestle with that at some point. I
0: don't know. No, I mean just the fact that I even had stills. I counted, you know. I I was thrilled to even yeah, have that. Right. And you know, and I spent a lot of time with Stanley's assistant, beloved assistant, Leon Vitali. And you know, Leon told me firsthand about the day he went and burned all the outtakes oh for the films. And <laughs> and you know, but he's able to explain to me why Stanley did that and why he wanted him to. And it, I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it makes sense. I mean, Stanley, Stanley was smart. You know, he he. When he died, there there were such a thing as DVDs, um, and he saw it was all heading. He saw these kind of quote-unquote director's cut coming mm. cuts coming out, and he basically said, you know, after I die, I don't want people putting scenes back in my movies that I don't want in them and then calling it a director's cut. Like, the film is the film, and he could remove temptation from anyone doing that after he was gone by just destroying all of it, which he did.
1: So you you mentioned well, uh, you had this access to uh, Leon Vitali, also uh, uh-huh. uh, Jan Harlan, and wait a uh, minute, I'm uh,
2: sorry to interrupt. You just said uh, most of it with a wink. Do you know
0: something? We well, don't just know the fact that I did uncover these little snippets. Okay, yes, scenes right. that I was able to use stills from in the book. Okay, sorry, Paul.
1: Oh no, no, no. <laughs> uh, uh, you mentioned yeah, you had this amazing access to people involved with the Cooper estate uh, as. You know, you said you were giving this information uh, to Jonathan Rinsler. Uh, can you tell us about the process of getting uh, involved with the estate and how you went about um, getting them to sure. share?
0: Well, to go way back, it all started with, you know, I was just collect. Once the internet became a thing, I started searching. I would look for anything having to do with The Shining, and I would find little things here and there. I'd find an image I hadn't seen, but it was pretty anemic. Um, and I would just file this stuff away in folders on my computer and then when blogging started to become a thing, I thought, you know what? I'm going to put all the stuff I have out online. I start a blog, and maybe there's one other person out there who <laughs> loves the shiny as much as I do, and they'll reap the benefits of it. Um, and so, I I did that. I I brought out the site uh, overlookhotel.com, and uh, at some point, I thought, huh? I wonder if anything is going to come my way because i put this out into the world and then that started to happen i would have people send me stuff to for the blog or just for me um and then i started to hear from a couple of people who actually worked on the movie and you know had conversations with them and um the the more you know after after a couple of decades of really having almost no information i was starting to to get more and more coming in and and it was really thrilling for me and then uh, after Stanley died, after a period of time, the family um, uh, donated uh, you know, all of his archives to the London College of Communication. And around the same time, they started this traveling Kubrick show, uh, which is still touring the world. And um, so when I was finishing up Toy Story 3, I knew I was gonna be going to London to do press. And so I reached out to Richard Daniels, who at the time was the the chief archivist at the at the archive, and I arranged to go visit it. I, I tacked on a few extra days at the end of my press tour and I sat in the archive for like three days. And I still have all my notes from mm-hmm. from that time. And my head just like exploded <laughs> at all the things that I saw mm-hmm. that were there. Mm-hmm. Um And so it was around then that I started thinking, well, maybe there's a book here. Because a lot of people had written about The Shining in terms of what it means and, you know, uh, interpretation, critical analysis. But there was very little about the actual making of the film. And that's what I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out um, via the archive. I reached out to uh, Jan Harlan and uh, pitched the idea for a book, pitched myself as a filmmaker making the book, which I knew would help grease the wheels. And it did. He was uh, very excited about it, but he wanted to see an actual proposal of what I wanted to do. And so, I sat on it for a while to think about it and During the time I was thinking about it, uh, many months later, uh, one of the attorneys from the Kubrick estate got in touch with me and said, hey, just to let you know, we've been approached by someone else who wants to do a book on The Making of the Shining.
1: And I was like, oh, man, (laughs) yeah,
0: (laughs) it's the bat, like 40 years later. Um, (laughs) And so I did some sleuthing and I found out that the other person was, was Jonathan Rinsler. And uh, and he was working with a partner he sometimes worked with named Brandon Ellinger. And uh, so I, I got in touch with Jonathan and it turns out he lived in the Bay Area, which is where I live. And so I invited him to Pixar for lunch. We had a great lunch. We, we, we realized that it was... Well, a we couldn't both do books. the 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 estate was only going to support one, mm-hmm. so we decided to join forces. And I had I knew a ton about the movie, but had never written a book. And Jonathan had written many books, but was kind of at square one with doing research. So it was kind of, we knew it would be a perfect partnership. And so uh, uh, Jan was thrilled because he didn't want to have to pick, and <laughs> off, we, off we went. Um, and it was many years before Tashin was involved. We, we always wanted to work with Tashin, but it was quite a few years. Wow. I ended up totally self-financing the writing of the book for wow. a period of time until Tashin was on board. Oh,
1: wow, and they, that lined up nicely because they had been doing these Tashin collection, uh, Stanley right. Kubrick-affiliated uh, um, exactly. so then word, uh, you're being modest, but word gets around quickly that you're not a shithead and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you make good stuff. And so what happens then? It's like, uh, uh, who, who's the person who kind of says, Lee's good to talk to, he, he's not going to mess this up or, uh, and then um, what doors does that open to?
0: oh in terms of like interviews yeah yeah i mean so the number one thing that i knew i had to do was uh was track people down because nobody was getting any younger mm-hmm. and and several people had passed away already who worked on the film uh, some of the key creatives so um i really put all my energy into finding people and and some of some of it took years to find I mean, it was years before i finally tracked down shelly duval and and was able to talk to her do you mean um, getting in contact with her or literally tracking her down? Literally finding her. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and it took me a long time to find Danny. Um, I was literally, like, I knew he was teaching biology at a, a community college in Kentucky. Like, wow. I had that one little tidbit. So, I was literally at websites for colleges in Kentucky going through faculty rosters. And I, I finally found him. And I wrote him. And then I didn't even hear back for a long time. And then he finally wrote back. And he was very cagey because... Everyone was protective of Stanley, even after Stanley's gone. Just about everyone is still very protective of him, and the fact that Stanley wouldn't have wanted any of them talking about anything. But I put Yan in touch with Danny with Dan, and uh, and that kind of Dan then opened up because he knew it was an officially sanct- sanctioned project, um, and that was kind of true for everyone. I mean, once I, once I kind of. I would to have a cover letter I would always send explaining my pedigree and 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 that this book was supported by Warner Brothers and the Kubrick estate. And that pretty much did the trick for just about everybody. And when it didn't, I would get Jan involved to make a phone call or send an email. Is there anybody that you wanted that you couldn't get, if you can say? Um, I didn't talk to Jack Nicholson. Yeah, right. And, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Mm. Um, I mean, at the highest levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jack just doesn't, Jack famously during his career didn't do interviews unless they were uh, in conjunction with doing promotion for a film. Mm -hmm. They they were very rare that he would do uh, interviews. Um, But I really wasn't worried. Uh, You know, I would have liked to have met Jack and I know he has the book now. Um, uh, We sent him a few copies. Um, But I knew that the material I had was going to suffice because uh, Vivian Kubrick, Stanley's daughter, made a documentary um, about the making of The Shining, which is on the Blu-ray. Um, and I got a hold of all of her footage of the interviews that she had done with the cast oh, members. Oh, wow. So is yep. that that was in the archive. So I was given permission to have that. So I had these full unedited interviews and, and the transcripts of them. And Jack gave... Um, like a two hour interview on his, literally his last day of filming. That's where you got that. That's
1: awesome. So,
0: and then, and then Jack also gave an interview maybe, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago to empire magazine as a favor to Steven Spielberg, who was guest editing that issue. Uh Um, to talk about the shining and and I got a hold of that whole transcript as well and and had long conversations with the journalist, Nev Pierce, who wrote that. Um, so I between the two and then other tidbits over the years, little bits and Bobs, I knew that he would be as well represented as anybody else and completely sufficiently. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like the other than not being able to talk to Stanley, who never would have talked to me. <laughs> uh, um, I feel like I got everyone with.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a
0: paid advertisement from BetterHelp. As a podcast listener, you've heard from us before. Today, let's hear from our members about what online therapy has done for them.
2: I would recommend my therapist
1: 1,000 times over. She has truly changed my life. The day after my first session, my friends and family said I sounded like myself again for the first time in weeks.
0: You deserve to invest in your well-being. Visit BetterHelp.com to see what it can do for you. That's BetterHelp.com.
2: Did you feel like you had any... Eureka moments or just moments of utter surprise that you didn't expect when you found something?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, there were plenty of stories that I, you know, had never heard before or, you know, eventually Dan Lloyd, uh, who played Danny Torrance, uh, introduced me to his parents who are both still living and were with him during the shoot. And I have gotten to be really good friends with them. And they um, they brought a I went to visit them, and they brought a trunk up from their basement, and it was full of costumes from the movie, oh. a bunch of Danny's <laughs> costumes. And God, yeah, and this is in the book, uh, in the, right? Yeah, yeah. And the mother load was that um they had about 450 35 millimeter negatives that they had shot Jeez. during the production that no one outside the family had seen. Oh my god. Amazing. And they hadn't even seen all of them because they they put some in a scrap in a photo album and the rest like had been forgotten. So um yeah, and like, they had access
1: because their family on sets and it's not like uh yeah. right.
0: They weren't always there because at Pretty early on, they realized that they were a distraction for Danny. But certain kinds of scenes where they were outside or on a big set, they they could kind of be there in the background. And and so that's how I discovered, you know, like, nobody could tell me where that, uh, that rear projection shot of them driving up in the car. Like, there was no information on the call sheets about what stage they were on or anything. And then I saw <laughs> Dan's father... Um, Um, Jim's photos uh, revealing that they were, (laughs) the car was set up like pretty much right where Jack's writing table was in in the 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 Colorado lounge. That photo is incredible. (laughs) So there was a lot of stuff like that. And then on on another level, in terms of surprises or biggest things I got out of it, it really, the whole process for me really humanized Stanley Mm. and, and made him, you know, he's still brilliant and nothing will change that, but I also saw the very human side of him, both from personal stories I was told, but also seeing him struggle as a filmmaker and not always have the answers. Um, You know, and there's similar stories and again, in Matthew Modine's diary about Full Metal Jacket and Stanley not knowing how that movie was going to be, was going to end even while they were in the middle of production and was always asking actors, like, why do you think it should end? You know, he was always, Stanley was always asking questions, always asking questions and um, because you never know where a good answer is going to come from. And it didn't need to, he didn't have such, you know, I think he had an ego on him, but I think he didn't have such an ego that he felt like he needed to be an auteur and the master, uh, you know, storyteller. Maybe that story was told later and he, and he didn't dispute it. But but while he was making his films, he was really open to suggestions and was always having conversations with people. His yeah, ego there's, is there's
1: interesting. A, oh, Matt,
2: go ahead. Well, just that uh, I find the the concept of Stanley Kubrick's, ego being an interesting thing in that. Yeah. He has seems to have an ego, but it, it does seem that that ego is in service of the film, as opposed to some other auteurs whose ego are in service of themselves, which I mean, by definition.
0: I I mean, I think it both, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Stanley knew how people talked about him uh-huh. and what a pedestal he was put on. And he never, he didn't do anything to dispute. That. You know, he was, he was never humble. Um, and when he did give interviews, it was always with the understanding that he was going to be given the interview too, so that he could edit it. I think I think Stanley was afraid that he would come off as an idiot, and he, or you know, or say something stupid and regret it. So yeah, he always maintained lead over control. He says that I mean, we've all had book, it happen. Right? Any of us who've been interviewed, yeah. like, oh, I do it say to myself, and all then the you're time. like, why the hell did I say that?
1: What's yeah. he say? He's talks you know, about so, Coppola, right? He's like really interested in Coppola's movies until he starts talking. So maybe I should just. uh...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he, yeah. I mean, he felt that way. So yeah, he, he held pretty tight reins over his public image for sure. And he, and he, I think he carefully curated that image and that, and it came back to bite him, I think in terms of The Shining, like I think a lot of the rumors out there about how actors were treated and what a tyrant Stanley was, came because of choices he made in his daughter's film, because Stanley had final cut over that film. And I know from talking to Vivian that there were a lot of other scenes and moments in it that maybe showed Stanley in a friendlier light, um, but Stanley kept steering her towards stuff scenes where he was being tough, mm-hmm. you know, or being stern, but that maybe matched the image that he knew people had of him. And and now because that's really the only visual record of, of Stanley working on that film, people you know they see us they see a moment of Stanley snapping and being stern with Shelley, which I don't think he's being abusive at all. He's just frustrated. Everyone was crispy at the end of production when they shot that, mm-hmm. and 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 Shelley missed a cue, and it was a big complicated shot. So, you know, he 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 kind of firmly gave her a talking to, as it were. Yeah. And uh and people that people see that and they assume that like that was every day on the set and that's what it was like. And it's just not it's not true. No, so. your book actually, anyway,
1: Yeah, no, it's it's actually a sweet notion kind of comes across in the book where it almost seems like uh maybe the guy was just a. Uh, shy nerd who didn't mind people seeing them as tough. <laughs> We're all that way. Well,
0: I even heard stories about him being intimidated by Jack because Jack Aww. was so charismatic and everybody <laughs> loved Jack. And Shelley felt that too, honestly, because Shelley was very, she was young and demure and, and uh, you know, she's working with these two powerhouses. But I think Stanley, there was, I, I would hear stories of there being little, kind of almost like pissing matches a little bit between them. Stanley going at it in an intellectual way, although Jack was also very intellectual, uh, and Jack going at it in and in, with a charisma that that Stanley I think only could have only hoped to have had. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned um, their name. I mean, the book also just really works as these kind of like you get these characters of like yeah, Danny's family, this sweet Midwestern family that gets kind of brought up and out to another country, and you get their sort of experience in Oz, and then. I'm so happy you spoke with uh, um, Shelley Duval because there is a paragraph in there that talks about how, in the same paragraph, she would have friends visit, members of Monty Python and martial artist Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, what people, people talk life? together again. <laughs> people talk about Shelley as if she was like completely abused on that movie and kept in a cage and brought out to shoot her scenes. But she was having a rich social life. She, yeah, she was friends with the Monty Python guys. She was dating Ringo Starr for a period of time. I mean, she was, she was out there. Yeah. Not that it wasn't tough, it was a difficult yeah, yeah,
1: shoot. Yeah. And you, then uh, you mentioned, um, Vivian Kubrick, who, when you read the book, you—it's really impressive the impact, influence that she seemed to have on the on the on the Shining. Can you discuss that? What was your uh, experience like learning that information? And uh, was that new to you? It was new to us?
0: Yeah, well, some of that I got through Vivian, and then a lot of it I got through other people, you know, who who knew Vivian or you know were with on the set with her. Vivian was very, very close to her father, and when Stanley asked Vivian to make this film, she was seventeen, and I think from, from the stories I was told, he was feeling like she was a bit adrift and didn't know where she was kind of going, what she wanted to do. She had worked for a time in the art department, I think, briefly, and she was going to quit. And Stanley said, "You should make a movie. You want to make a movie? Make a movie." And so he, I think probably at that point, he maybe saw her as, I don't want to say heir apparent, but he saw her as the one person who maybe would kind of follow in his footsteps mm-hmm. and, and make films herself. And she only did, you know, she shot The Shining and made that film. She also shot a documentary on a Full Metal Jacket, but never edited it. Like it was never completed. Um,
1: have you ever gotten to see all any that- of that footage? The full, Or do you think... Have- Word around the campfire at all that it would ever come out the making of the. It all campfire. exists. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you if you go to the uh, the Stanley Kubrick exhibit mm-hmm. uh, in the Full Metal Jacket room, there's a, typically a monitor playing showing a bunch of that footage. So uh, yeah, a little bit of it is, is out there. Know, I like and it. all the footage. All the footage she shot on The Shining still exists too. All the negative exists.
1: Yeah. Anything um, that wasn't in the documentary that was that you? Oh, she like, shot. Yeah.
0: No, it's like eighty hours of wow. footage.
1: And is it uh, uh, um, stuff just, like, behind, uh, literally behind the sets, or is it...
0: uh, No, she's on the set. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, a little bit of it Yan used in his, um, uh, the documentary he made about Stanley, My Life in Pictures, Mm -hmm. Um, but... Uh, I've seen all the camera logs. Uh, I've, I've read through Vivian's notebook, so I know what all the footage is. And it's like unprecedented access to the entire filming of the film. Um, will it ever see the light of day? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I hope so. Um, I think that while Vivian is really in control of it um, and she doesn't want it seen, she, she firmly believes Stanley would not want it seen and she's adamant that she doesn't want it seen. But it does exist, and you know, perhaps, perhaps our children <laughs> will someday be able to see it. I don't know, um, but I think it's vital that it be preserved for film history. You know, at a certain point, I don't know that you need to keep respecting the wishes of the artist uh, when it comes to somebody of Stanley's magnitude and influence on cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this footage deserves to be
1: seen someday. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm
0: first in line. I I have a feeling you will be.
1: (laughs) When I mentioned that uh, the making of, you know, it's just the best making of book I've read. It it functions as like a, oh, if you like, you know, if you love The Shining, it's a great making of book. If you love Stanley Kubrick, it's really great because I think it's just like understanding his process is amazing. Um, But yeah, it's also just a great making of book in terms of if you love movies and want to know how different departments work in conjunction with each other, which remarkably that doesn't come up often in making of books. Uh,
0: I wanted, I wanted everyone um, represented. Uh, you know, I would sometimes get some pushback about who I was talking to just because I, maybe they were deemed not important, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't care if it was, I mean, I talked to Jack Nicholson's personal chef mm. that was at his home with him during the shoot. or like anyone, any grip or, pa anyone who i could find i wanted to talk to because everyone has stories that
2: story about nicholson calling his chef at like 2 30 in the morning saying gonna throw a party right now get up and make,
0: make a bunch of food well yeah it's not yeah it's it's actually that's the opening scene of vivian's documentary if you see uh, the very beginning is jack on the phone and he's on the phone with uh, with his chef like getting that 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 menu dialed in um uh uh, anyway, I wanted to speak to everybody because everyone has stories. And that's why I think so many making of books sound kind of the same is because they're talking to like the the A-list talent. And, and they have stories and they're important stories, but they're not complete stories. And so... Um, I I I really went wide and deep with talking to people. And I think I got as thorough a telling of what actually went on day to day as as could be created. Well,
1: particularly with the lighting um the yeah. the cinematography crew, because I think that seemed to be like the secret recipe that was going on in Kubrick's movies is just like how and they seem to be really dedicated, but also they could kinda Razz the boss every once in a while. <laughs> I don't know what the well, Lou Lou Bogues. Yes, the, the, yes,
0: yeah. Lou Bogues a real character in the book. Um, <laughs> he's he's still living. He's a he's a really funny guy. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like with somebody like Kubrick, most people demure to uh, uh, to somebody like that, um, but Lou didn't. And I think Stanley liked when the, when he encountered people that would talk back to him a little bit. As long as they knew their shit and like and were good at their jobs. There's a, a famous piece
2: ever. of lore <laughs> that I wonder if you found any um evidence of where they were filming The Spy Who Loved Me and the set was so <laughs> big for the submarine hangar. And apparently they brought in Kubrick off the record to advise with lighting that set. Have you ever heard that? No.
1: Oh, that's never awesome. Heard? If Ken Adams is like, buddy. Need you in here.
0: It was Ken Adam. Because yeah, no, it's then. possible. That might not have been a factoid I would, um, would uh, lock into here. Yeah, in the room, <laughs> in the headroom. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, it's possible. I mean, in the book, I think I mentioned like uh, the the one of the, the, the clapper. Um, one of the camera assistants on The Shining went on to Empire. Yeah. And um, there was some issue with getting equipment or a certain lens or something. And he called Stanley and Stanley kind of greased the wheels wow. and made it happen for them. So there'd be things like that. Um uh, Before I forget, I wanted uh, uh, to mention that I listened to your first episode about The Shining um that you've put out. Yeah. I think it's only been one so oh, far, right? Oh, dispel
1: armits, please. Yes.
0: No, 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 no. no, no. Well, yeah, I... Maybe you didn't get everything perfectly <laughs> right, but I'm the only person in the world that would know that. But <laughs> what I did want to mention is that you said something that I didn't know. Okay, you I, saw something I, or read something on the internet that I had never seen. I'm dying to hear which what you is, said. Um, which is the scene where Danny uh, gets off his trike and goes to the to room two three seven and tries the doorknob. The fact that there's a the the doorway is open in the background oh, and you I, can me. see off yeah. the set. I had never noticed that and I'd never read anything about it. So, of course, I immediately went, well, I looked on my phone first because I have the movie on my phone and then watched it bigger. And it just shows you that when you're watching films, you're the, the filmmaker knows where your eye is meant mm-hmm. to be and what you're meant to be looking at. And I have seen that movie God, God knows how many times. And I'm always watching Danny cross over to that door. And yeah, that's like blatantly wrong in the background. If that <laughs> happened today, he would have digitally put a door yeah. in or something. So the question is, did he ever notice? Because he probably would have been pissed if he had noticed and he would have been pissed at himself for yeah, not noticing. That's a good, yeah. Um, but he but it wasn't important enough to him. Well, he didn't start editing the movie till everybody rapped. So uh so he it's not like he could have seen that and then gone back and right. uh reshot it mm-hmm. um if the editor had if it, then maybe they didn't even see it in dailies yeah. i don't know everyone is probably just watching danny yeah. it had to right?
1: be pointed out to me and when i uh, online and when i saw it, it yeah it did blow my mind and exactly it speaks to the power of like where your eye is supposed to go and uh, totally. you could have a dancing bear on the side of there and you wouldn't notice it and,
0: and that you can have mistakes
2: you can mistakes have a flailing dog and still not know
0: <laughs> happen. You tell me like, what's in the background
2: like a, of the filleting dog, and I'll give you a million dollars.
0: <laughs> like, wasn't there a bottle of Avion, like, in a, in a scene in Game yes, of Thrones? Yes, there was. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, stuff like that happens. Yeah. And, I mean, even on my movies, like, every shot in Toy Story 3, we would watch the finished version of the shot up on a big screen looping with a theater full of people. Kept trying to catch mistakes. And yet there's still at least one glaring mistake in that movie that none of us caught. <laughs> so it's like an interesting group psychology mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, yes. But I, I when in December, we had the book rollout in London and we had a big to-do at the Kubrick estate, which was awesome. And we had a screening of The Shining at the British Film Institute. And it was the first time that I had seen The Shining up on a big screen in, in quite a while. And I was watching it and in one scene, the scene where Wendy's kind of Staggering around the hotel at the end and seeing scary thing after scary thing, when she comes upon Scatman Crothers' dead body, you know she sees him in a wide shot. It cuts to her face, I think, and then it cuts back to the wide shot. And there's a snap zoom in on on Scatman laying there uh, in a puddle of blood. And for whatever reason, at that screening, I, I every other time you're looking at the blood, you're looking at the wounds on his chest, but I looked at his face. And I was like, oh, my God, he's like blinking. Ah! <laughs> and that's wow. the take that's in the movie. Oh, my and God. And I just, I had never noticed it. And I think it maybe took seeing it on a big screen like that. But mm-hmm. once I saw it, now I always look there and I see Scatman going like, <laughs> oh, now I'm going to do that. Oh, my God. Uh. That's
1: fantastic. Well,
0: So yes, it, do, it does dispel the myth of Stanley being like hyper in control of every last thing and there being no mistakes in his films.
1: Well, with the framing, you know, I'm curious when you mentioned the door. And, uh, it, and and what you had just seen, too. But um, Warner Brothers, I don't know, I, you can hold your tongue about this or whatever, they sometimes do funky things with their home video releases. The sound designer talks about it, um, just saying, like, when it went to 5.1, they sort of fud stuff. But there's early controversies of the, like, oh, you see the helicopter shadow when it's full frame versus not. I mm-hmm. personally love the VHS release and the um, original DVD 1999 release because it does have it in the full-frame aspect ratio and the color, right. the color, right. colors are the same. Um, what – like, how does that – because there's also a tidbit sort of about Terry Semmel does get to – as Warner Brothers gets to watch The Shining and have a reaction – How does that all handle in home video release? Is it just the Kubrick estate hands it over and they...
0: No, 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 no. Stanley was completely in control of everything until he died Mm -hmm. in 99. So anything prior to 99, Stanley was 100% hands-on in making decisions about the releases. And everything after he died for a long period of time, Leon Vitale was handling with explicit instructions from Stanley about what Stanley wanted and an understanding of what Stanley Mm -hmm. wanted. All that stuff about the aspect ratio, I've seen people getting a lather over it mm-hmm. online, but the facts are really very simple. At the time that Stanley made The Shining, he knew that The Shining was going to be seen on television. And so he didn't like he didn't want it to be panned and scanned, which is something they used to do when when you were moving from a widescreen aspect ratio to more of a square TV screen shape, they would actually do camera moves and, and framing kind of on the telecine when they were doing the film transfer. And it always looks like shit. Like nobody is happy with pan and scan and, Stan- and Stanley certainly wasn't. So Stanley shot The Shining knowing that it was going to be seen theatrically and it was going to be seen on television. And his idea of television at the time was, was right, uh, like a one three three ish aspect ratio. And so... Um, they shot the film 185, definitely. 185 was the aspect ratio that he wanted The Shining shot in, but he protected the full frame so that he would have access to it and there wouldn't be any mistakes and the composition would still work. You know, mm-hmm. he kind of framed for both at the same time so that he would be as happy with the the version that was shown on television and home video as it was at that time, um, as well as the theatrical 185. I think Stanley's ideal aspect ratio was one six, six. He would have loved to shoot everything in that. Oh. He, that to him was like the perfect aspect uh-huh. ratio, but it just wasn't realistic. And to, to, to think that, that theaters would properly use the right lenses and the right, um, uh, aperture gates in the projectors. It just was too much to control. And I think he realized that was a battle he wasn't going to win. And so he, I think begrudgingly accepted one eight, five as a standard. And, and that's how he shot. Um, but in terms of getting into the 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 weeds on the later video releases mm-hmm. you know once dvd came out um yeah i mean i think he he definitely was involved like however it was on dvd while he was alive that was what he agreed to and was happy with um what started to get fudgy was when we started having widescreen TVs mm-hmm. you know and, and and high def TVs uh when those started to become the standard because that aspect ratio isn't they're not showing 185, and 185 is kind of close, so you do have little thin mm-hmm. letterboxes. So I think they made a decision uh, to fudge the, the the compositions ever so slightly to accommodate that. An- and and that's where we've kind of ended up with all the subsequent releases. Oh, that's
1: a great answer. Thank you. The, uh, an- uh, just another dorky nuts and bolts question that I wondered. How do you think they did that Summer of 42 on the TV when Wendy and Danny are watching it. Do you How they did it? Yeah. Like there's What do you mean? There's no cables. How did they
0: Well, you can you can tape a cable to the back of a leg and then hide yeah, it. Yeah, all a right.
1: That's, that's the kind that's of That's what I, I was like. saying. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's what they did. He didn't want to cord there. This is what keeps be- Paul up at night. <laughs> there's so many of the decisions that Kubrick made and so many of the quote unquote continuity errors in the Shining and other films of his. Came from the fact that he, all Stanley cared about, was the individual compositions, mm-hmm. the frames. Yeah. If there's a lamp in the background of another shot, and it's getting in the way of a of a composition of a different angle in the same scene, he he would not hesitate to remove it.
1: Oh yeah, that's you know, not a, all- a nitpicky thing. Like, how was that TV showing that? It's a. It was mm-hmm. like a. What's the movie magic here? When I was a little kid, I always kind of scratched my head. I loved it. Oh, I don't know.
0: I mean, they think (laughs) they hid the cord. I mean, it wasn't a process shot or anything. They just were playing it on the TV. Yeah. um, There's only one special effects shot in the entire movie. Is it the maze? Um, No, it's well, yeah, you could. Yes, I'm sorry. I should include that one because that was a process shot. Uh, Yes. So, but uh, there's only one in camera effect which is the the wide shot of Jack sitting and typing. Oh, yeah. You sit in in your Where there's a roaring fire. And they couldn't because the the set was so bright and the film stock at the time was not not fast enough to, you know, the the sets had to be lit to a certain brightness. They wouldn't have gotten a good uh, exposure on the fire in the fireplace. So they shot the whole shot without the fire burning in the fireplace. Then they backwound the film and they turned all the lights off on the set and they lit a roaring fire and then they exposed for the fire and then they exposed the same negative a second time. That's incredible. To end up with the uh, the shot as it is. Oh. But yeah, I have to be careful when I say that's the only effect shock because yes, of course, the the overhead shot of Jack of Danny and Wendy in the middle of the maze was definitely a, a composite. But yeah, in they, camera, that's so fascinating.
2: Like not to go back to James Bond again, but when they did all their space effects. They, they rolled back the camera multiple times in different portions Ooh. of the frame so that they didn't overlap. And they were just nervous as hell every time going, we're, we're taking another risk, yet another risk, and we're going to lose. Well, all. and it's cool. But, yeah, yeah, and it's it, cool because you don't
0: have to like go down a generation and, in you know, doing an optical. Yeah, but they, every we time they, see, they- You always they see movies where it gets all grainy. Yeah, all yeah, else, yeah. Like, you know, okay, yeah. there's a special effect coming up in a moment. Uh,
2: yes, or a dissolve it. And, and every <laughs> dissolve, time yeah. they did it, they're lose, you know, in potentially losing all the iterations before, and just yeah. what a time and a place to be in. Special and when you're effects. a kid,
1: the animation equivalent is like that drawer looks a little different there in the desk. I think they're gonna yes. open that drawer. It's gonna move. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not part of the background painting. Yeah. <laughs> Leah, uh, I want to ask about
2: yes. the design elements for the Toshin book and what that process was like, and 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 mm-hmm. choosing what was going to go in there. Did it just present itself? Was the kind of overlooked Bible there from the beginning and the manuscript of the all work and
0: no play? What, what was the process like?
1: Yeah, describe the different well, components. That's pretty cool.
0: Sure. Well, early on, from a design perspective, early on, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I really wanted to work with Tashin, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a no-brainer. They weren't just going to accept it. I had to make a pitch. And somebody gave me some advice that I should reach out to the same designers in Paris who had done the uh, the two the uh, two thousand one book, which was I think in in progress at that moment, and they had also done the Napoleon book. Mm. And so I reached out to them to uh, Matthias and Mikhail at MM Design in Paris, and they happened to be in LA. And so we had lunch at Chateau Marmont one day, mm-hmm. and I and I like had my laptop and showed them a lot of the stuff I'd already gathered, and they were intrigued and and excited and. And they came back with this notion of doing um, doing a big scrapbook because uh, I had told them about the scrapbook in the movie that had been excised, and they were fascinated by this ghostly scrapbook that was still in the movie but it wasn't part of the film. So that was their idea to do a big oversized scrapbook and also to do a Bible, like they were inspired by like uh, like a Bible that you would find in a hotel nightstand. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and we knew it was going to, I mean, I, I told Tashin from the beginning, this is going to be unlike any book you've done. It's going to be very text heavy and it has to be, and then you need to be on board with it. Yep. And they were, Benedict never pushed back on that. Um, so they kind of came up with this notion and then I pushed for the ephemera box to have all the all work and no play um, pages. And it was a great place for us to tuck some other bits and bobs, like that great continuity script that I got from um, from Vivian. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. Anyway, so that design kind of stuck pretty much from the beginning. I mean, it was refined, of course, over time. Um, But in terms of the actual content, I was naive. I'd never done a book before, and I assumed I needed to just turn everything over to them and they were going to make the book. Um, But it became clear pretty quickly that while they were really interested in the design in terms of the typeface and the, just the, the aesthetics and the paper and like everything about the book, the actual content of the book, they really deferred to me on. And mm. so it became a really great collaboration. Um, I ended up choosing every photo for, the, for both the Bible and for the scrapbook. Doing all that editing, I mean, I had printouts. My my kitchen was covered with with images as I found pairings and mm-hmm. and kind of figured out what that book was going to be. Um, and then the same with the with the Bible. I just I, I did all that editing. I mean, nobody knew the material better than me. Yeah. I knew I knew what was special. I knew what was important. I knew what had never been seen. So it made sense for me to do all that work. And then they figured out it was a lot of back and forth to figure out how to get the images close to where things were being talked about in the textbook it was a very it was like a grueling process to be honest but it was necessary
2: you know what i love about the scrapbook is it kind of honors the um i don't know the story between the lines in the movie where there's just m- missing photos in the scrapbook there's the spaces where so that was
0: are- their idea yeah there was their idea to have the, the somehow have the 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 clippings slowly disappearing and the way they originally proposed it, they were going to have just like letters disappear off the the, the articles. Uh-huh. but um but I I got excited and inspired by their idea and I said, no, we got to make this like since the real scrapbook doesn't exist anymore, we have to make these articles and make them look real and Amazing. and when they disappear, I want them to be gone like, like a picture has been taken down off the wall of a, <laughs> an old house, yeah, and the and yeah. the, the wallpaper is not faded where the picture was. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, uh, again, um, I I took that on with their blessing. I made all of those clippings that are uh, in that scrapbook. Do you, wow! But you a, a design, or you just wrote them, or all? Yes, of it? you did the whole design. Everything. Oh Wait, my That's was, like was, a
1: book in itself that's so yeah. crazy <laughs>
0: it was so fun it was a big long project wow. there were bits and bobs of remnants in the archive that I was able to make use of for some of the articles but other ones I just had to be creative and I at the very end of the scrapbook there's a vellum sheet and I have a kind of disclaimer as it were where I explain that the actual scrapbook is long lost <laughs> but that I created these with the same level of verisimilitude that Stanley would have demanded and oh. so uh yeah, I mean, I was like, I went all in. I even designed the backsides of the articles so that they, because I knew they were a
2: little Oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. Th- this leads That's me to that Kubrick question. I a Kubrick
1: level attention to detail. The newspapers I, never look fake in a Kubrick movie. I asked you
2: earlier <laughs> yeah. how much you dedicated your time. So would you just take, oh, I'm going to take a, a week's vacation and make some newspaper articles or just whenever you, know, you had time?
0: I mean, I was making, I was developing and then making Coco for- seven of the years of hmm. this book project. So all I could really do was stuff on the weekends. Okay. I would I would do most of my interviews on like Saturday or Sunday mornings because that would be like wow. 4 p.m. in the UK. Um, so that would happen and I could just gather stuff on my own time. But when it came to making the book in earnest, I left Pixar about I don't know, like three years ago now or so, and I was able to devote more full time. So stuff like the newspaper clippings and actually bringing the helping to bring the book across the finish line, I, I was able to devote, you know, kind of pretty much full time to helping with That's that.
2: Incredible! That's just, that. I it really feel, like feels my heart with joy to hear <laughs> that you had your fingers in the design of it as well. I just love that kind of thing. This book, I did.
0: Well, and I'm grateful to to MM for letting me. You know, that they, they, I mean, as much as they wanted to have their imprint on it and, and had strong feelings about the design, they equally knew that this was my baby and they wanted me to be happy with it. And they wanted me to have as much kind of control over it as, as I felt I needed. So it was, it was a great uh, collaboration, Oh man,
2: but not to be too grandiose, but this book is To me, the definitive, definitive book about a movie because it's just, it's incredible. Well,
0: thank you. It makes me really happy to hear that. And the fact that you mentioned that, I mean, I always saw this being a book for fans of The Shining and fans of Kubrick and just fans of filmmaking. One of the things that Jonathan Rinsler brought to this that we never really discussed, but it came out of trying to figure out where to put material is he, he came up with this notion of having these sidebars all throughout the book yes. that kind of delve a little more deeply into Kubrick and his mm-hmm. methods um, and, and his personal life. And I love that. I love that you get these little breaths throughout mm-hmm. the book to dive deeper into Stanley. And, and, and there's a lot of material in there that I've never read before. So I think it paints a, a fuller picture, perhaps, of Stanley, kind of the fullness of him, in his personal life and the way he worked. um, I I think it does. And I'd be really happy to know that it kind of brings a lot more to the table for Kubrick scholars and for people to understand who he was as a person and a filmmaker. Yeah, I I was a fan of The
2: Shining, but
0: I'm more of a fan of The Shining
2: after having read this. And I say that with no exaggeration. I really loved the movie, but this book put me in, in a way that made me immediately, I couldn't wait to watch it again, but I wanted to save it till after I had read the book so I could just take it all in. And now I watch it in a new way that I'm so happy about because I think I've been watching it in the same way, loving it, but now it's like kind of getting to
0: watch a, a new version of the film. And it, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. Well, Thank you. Well, Steven Spielberg gave me a quote. He Steven wrote the ended up writing the foreword for the book. And in, you know, he says something amazing. When I read it, my jaw dropped. He said, you know, something like, you must read this book, and the moment you finish it, watch the movie again. He said, I don't care how many times you've seen it, you'll never watch it the same way yes, again.
2: That's what I meant to say Not is enough. that I am just like Steven Spielberg. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Lee>, yeah. <laughs> thank you. No, it, it's so funny. Much. You, Exactly. It's like the pain when you're a fan of something, you pick up a book and you read it. And the person who wrote it wasn't as big a fan as you. Right. So there's usually only one piece of new information in a book you picked out. Right. The only comparison I can really make to this, it's like the Get Back documentary about the Beatles, where Mm -hmm. it really changes how you... That changes how you viewed the Beatles, everything you kind of were like, oh, I know about the Beatles, they did this, and these are the five facts I've heard regurgitated. To read this book, it is, um, it's is—it's on the equivalent of something that, uh, it's a pivot point in how people see Stanley Kubrick. It's going to really, when this comes out and everybody gets on their hands on it, all these people who've written about the Shiner are going to have to be like, uh, okay,
0: bye. Well, it was very kind of you to say thank you. It's like, um, I'm like, that really means a lot to me because that was the book I tried to make. Um, I, yeah, to your point right now, only a thousand people in the world get to, see this book and read this book because it's only out in, in a collector's edition. Um but I, I'm hoping by the end of next year we'll have a, a, a an affordable version of it for the masses and, and everyone will get to read this. And I hope you'll throw this back into your podcast feed again when uh, when the trade edition comes out so that people can hear about it and actually go buy oh, the book. Absolutely which is very difficult for people to do We'll right be now. talking
2: about it for a long time to come, but we've said this on the podcast before, even though of course it's very expensive I can't tell you how worth it it is. Uh, for one thing, it's Tosh, and so it's an investment. These things go up. But the knowledge in this book, with all these bookmarks I have here, if you if you just put, I don't know, five dollars on each bookmark, every little bit of trivia you'd you'd pay for it. I would pay five dollars yeah, for yeah. each one of these little factoids, and it adds up to the to the amount. It's worth it. Yeah, you got to send me a picture of that. Okay, that's that's awesome. I will, (laughs) Lee. Thank you so much for doing this with us. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Absolutely, yeah, really great to do it, and uh, I'm glad you love it so much. Thank you. Means a lot.
2: Thank you. For more Gorley and Rust content, head over to patreon.com slash with and Rust to get episodes ad-free and a whole week early, plus monthly mailbag episodes and feature-length watch-along film commentaries of your favorite horror classics. That's patreon.com slash with and Rust. Email us at withgourleyandrust at gmail.com, and your questions might be featured on a future mailbag episode. With Gorley and Rust theme song by me, Mac Gourley and performed by Townland. You can find us on Instagram as Townland Band, as well as Paul's fantastic band at Don't Stop or We'll Die. And why not rate and review with Gorley and Rust on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show and keep us trucking through the Jasons and the Michaels, the Leatherfaces and the Chuckies, the Aliens and the Candy.